pig polack, disgusting, vulgar, greasy. Those kind of words have been on your tongue and your sister's tongue is too much around here. Who do you think you are, a pair of queens? I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. My place is all cleared up now. You want me to clear yours? Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to Spit and Polish Presents. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Swinsky. And I'm Bartek, the other host. Hello, other host Bartek. How are you doing on this fine recording? Good initial host, Ryan. <laughs> the initial host. I'm the spawning host, and you are, well, I, you are the... If I, I'm the other. We've, we've defined this on the show. You're the other. I'm the pole. You're the Polak. I think that actually works. I think I think we can nail that one down. Yeah, you're the more Polishy one out of the two of us. So we should rename ourselves Pole and Polak. Yeah, 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 yeah. And keep the spitting in there instead of the and. Pole spitting Polak. I like the title of that show. Actually. Well, we'd be spit. We'd be adding an ing. Oh yeah, no, no, no. You're right. We'll remove. You know, forget the whole thing. Let's keep it as spit and polish, like because we're always spitting, and we both happen to be Polish. We are doing our show, Pictures Pow Wow, in which we do a movie that has come recommended, uh, whether it be from Bartek, whether it be from myself. This week it is a listening people's suggestion, and uh, we were recommended a classic of not just cinema, but of but of stage as well. We are doing A Streetcar Named Desire, the film adaptation from 1951, starring Marlon Brando himself. So if people have not watched this or have not consumed this at all, we recommend you do. It is an interesting piece of work, and it is definitely something you should watch on your own if you have not already, instead of being spoiled by two Polish podcasters. Wouldn't you agree, Bartek? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this film's 71 or 70 years old at this point, so there's been time for some people to watch it. Yeah, there's been wars since this movie, so you've had the time. Uh, Bartek, we are still in lockdown. We are recording this through the internet, and yet when I watched this movie last night on my big television screen... I felt like it was an innocent era because I was like, oh, look at them. They're all together in this building and they can like interact with one another and walk across the street and everything. And I'm, and I'm sitting here watching this movie that's like, oh, what a nightmare world this movie is supposed to be. Look how horrible it is for everyone involved. And I'm sitting there laughing because I'm like, oh, I live in a horror right now. And I don't get to record in person with my best boy, Bartek. That's your new name, best boy, Bartek. I think I've used that before, but I'm going to use it again. Um, What was it like for you watching this movie? And have you seen this before? Are you familiar with the source material, the original play at all? Uh, Well, first of all, I was comfy in my bed, so I wasn't in any sort of hell. Um, in terms of my history with A Streetcar Named Desire, I hadn't seen, uh, any of it. Haven't seen the play, haven't seen, I think there's future adaptations into film, haven't seen them, haven't seen this one. Um, so this was me really 
entering in fresh. And did you have any knowledge of what this was? Did you know of it before, like in any way? Was there anything of this you knew before going in? Yes, but probably less than most people. I, I knew, obviously, there was, like, the Stella line. Um, there was, obviously, a Simpsons episode where they were putting on a play of it, which I don't remember the details of that episode, but, you know, there were little bits. Um, I didn't really, truly know what the general story was, um, just that this was a classic, and I couldn't even remember exactly if this originated as a play or a film. Mm, yeah, yeah. So uh, I have seen this, um, not this movie before, but I have seen the play performed live in high school. We also watched another film adaptation, a TV movie adaptation, I do believe, with starring Alec Baldwin and Jessica Lange and also John Goodman as Mitch, which was great casting choice. Uh, I've seen those. I've also read the, 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 the script for the play before because we're studying it in high school. Uh, so I am familiar with it, but it was interesting to see this film because this film has a big reputation. It's got Marlon Brando, one of the greatest actors of his generation. You could still argue one of the greatest actors in the in the craft of acting, you could argue. And I was familiar with the iconography of the movie from pieces of pop culture riffing on it. Of course, the iconic Stella and all of that. I knew it was in black and white. I knew it was going to be a film about people being sweaty and confined in one and mainly one location. I knew all of that stuff going in, but there were still some interesting things watching this film and this adaptation that was really interesting and really thrilling and really kind of unique to this uh, to this version and the constraints that it was under because this is, after all, a film made by Hollywood in the 1950s. So there's going to be some things they're going to have to soften, some things they're going to have to plain old remove. And it was fascinating to watch it from that lens, as well as just appreciating it for the story, the characters, the acting direction and music and so on and so forth. Uh, So Bartek, you knew nothing, you knew very little of this. So tell us what it was like your experience uh, watching a streetcar named Desire. How did it all unfold for you? Um, I'll just give some very quick context that uh, we have a DVD of this at my home, so I watched it on that. And just a few hours ago, um, because I still had you know time to kill before we did this, I actually put it on again with the audio commentary on. Um, so I, I do have... There were some things from there that I gleaned some information from, but not as much as I was hoping for. So there might be some things I bring up uh, in this episode that you know I heard from that. Um, but in terms of my, you know, standard viewing of the two-hour film on its own, um, it, it was it was really interesting. I, I it took me a li- little bit to get into. Not that it was, you know, bad or anything. It was like, you know, once Marlon Brando comes in, it's like, ooh, feels like the film's really started. Um, and yeah, it was really interesting seeing that every character had, you know, real duality to them. Um, there were, you know, the surface level performance and then also, um, you know, their real selves coming out at times. So who did the commentary track on the DVD? Just curious. So it was a kind of, I don't know how common this is in commentary tracks, but basically it was a thing where I think one of the producers sort of hosted it as like, oh, now you're going to hear from this person. And there were three people they had. There was... 
um, the actor that played Mitch, um, mm-hmm. and two film historians, the DVD said. Um, and it's not like they were okay. all together or anything like that. It was just like, uh, you will now hear from this guy talk about this thing. You will now hear from this guy talk about this thing. It was kind of weird. I've heard those type of commentaries uh, somewhat reminiscent. I brought it up on our Falling Down episode. They had a similar thing in which they had a series of different people talking about the movie. Some of them were brought in to record their moments for commentary tracks. Some of them were extracted from interviews or press junkets and or retrospective discussion of the movie. So I'm familiar a little bit with that. Uh, type. I mean, it would have been interesting if they uh, if they dragged in any of this like other surviving cast or crew into it, like an old Marlon Brando to talk about this movie, especially with how weird and crazy and bizarre he was as an older gentleman. Um, but uh, I, I get where you're coming at. So, so it took you a little while to warm up to the film. I I completely understand that, and I completely agree with it too. I took a little while to warm up to this movie uh, because um, Blanche is is a lot, and that's the point. She's she's a performer. That's her character. She's always performing. She's always putting on a show. She's always putting on this version of herself. And I knew that. I've seen the play. I've seen this performed elsewhere and in other versions. But it was still quite a lot to get into. Like I know that this is what Blanche is like. But I, along with the people around her in the movie, eventually warmed up to that really kind of abrasive, uh, abrasive character that she's putting on this this Southern Belle type who's very, very shrill and very over the top. And I, along with the other characters, was just like, oh, my God, what is this? Who's this? And of course, I know the details of what happened to her and why she is this way, but it was still like a a kick to the face. And I think, in a way, you need that for the movie or the story to to really land. But it's also one of those techniques in which, you know, you're alienating the audience at the beginning, but it's in a way where it will win you over by the end. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah, I think that roughly covers it. It's... Yeah, she, like you say, she is a lot, and that is the point. Um, it, it basically, you know, the first few minutes of the film, up before we meet Marlon Brando, there's a lot of, you know, exposition and uh, the expression of character happening. Expression of character being, you know, all her flowery dialogue and her back and forth with her sister. And, you know, for someone like me who isn't familiar with the story, just working out, like, what the deal is, why she's here, things like that. What were any other aspects that uh, that were off-putting to you to begin with? And why is it that Marlon Brando as Stanley was kind of the key that flipped it for you? Um, I think it would be really, uh, uh, you know, not quite accurate to say that, you know, I wasn't into this film when it started. It was just basically the thing I just said. Um, you know, still trying to work it out and, uh, you know, who these characters are, what's going on. Um, and to the other point, when Marlon Brando comes in, um, he brings a very physical performance to the film. Like a lot is being said, you know, through his mannerisms, how he interacts with, uh, Blanche, how he acts around the house, things like that. It was, it was very much for the, <laughs> double meaning here for the eyes you know some people eye candy for other people you know characterization 
Would you say that you were at all um, drawn in and or affected to be drawn in by him because he is Marlon Brando, who, let's be honest, is one of the most iconic actors of this era? Did that? Do you think that weighed in in any way, like this uh, this notion of like, well, you know, it's Marlon Brando, like that kind of naturally wins you over in some minute way? Do you think that at all impacted you? Um, for me, not as much because I haven't seen really all that much with him. I think it's mainly just like The Godfather and Apocalypse Now for me. Um, but definitely, I've heard you know, a lot about Marlon Brando, you know, everyone's saying he's a great actor and that this is one of his big iconic performances, like his second film role, the one that really, you know, made him kind of big in cinema. So that to some extent, you know, I was paying attention because I wanted to see, you know, what was the deal. But in, in terms of, uh, not the mysticism, but the, uh, the, the awe, I didn't have it as much, mm-hmm. but definitely I did enjoy his performance. I I think I was definitely drawn in by the the uh, legacy and the awe that is Marlon Brando when it comes to his version of Stanley, because I've seen other actors play the character. Alec Baldwin played it in the other adaptation I've seen. I like Alec Baldwin very much, but I didn't walk into that adaptation being like, oh, I've really got to be keen on this character of Stanley because, you know, it's Alec Baldwin. No, I didn't have that. I just went, he's going to do a fine job. While this adaptation, we, 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 people stated the one with Marlon Brando, the Marlon Brando, even though Marlon Brando and Stanley isn't the focus of this story or movie. He's in it. He's key. But this is about Blanche. This is about Vivian Lee. And I think it definitely did affect my viewing in a both positive and, and negative way. I think that, um, it took me a lot longer to warm up to Vivian Lee's performance because a part of me was thinking, well, this is the Marlon Brando movie, though. This is the Marlon Brando show. This is about Marlon Brando and his unique method acting and all of that stuff. And I do admit that it took me a while to to get over that hurdle, even though, yes, I keep saying it, I, I know how Stanley serves in this story, but I was still waiting on... Oh, but Marlon Brando's going to deliver the stuff. And he does. He does deliver the stuff. But, you know, our main actress, you know, Blanche Dubois, she is what the movie, the story is really about. And she did a fantastic job. She is an actress that I am familiar with as well. Uh, she's in Gone with the Wind. And she's in a few other things. She was in a few other things of note that I've seen. So she wasn't unfamiliar to me. But again, it's like. There are certain actors that, if they're in a project, it does color the project differently. You know, like, it's got Casablanca. That's the Humphrey Bogart show. You go there for Humphrey Bogart. You got Peter Laurie, you got Sidney Greacher, you got everyone else there. They're great too. But you're there for Humphrey Bogart. That's who you're there for, as well as a great movie. And I, I you know, I... I missed Marlon Brando when he wasn't in the movie, but then I also detested having him there because his character is such a filthy, disgusting monster of a man. Um, you said you've only seen him in a in a couple of things like Apocalypse Now and uh, uh, The Godfather. Um, 
you know, since we're talking about Brando, what what did you what did you like? What else did you think of him in this and like his performance and 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 Stanley as a character? Also, he's a Polish representative. So, how did he do for Poland? <laughs> um, well, to jump on what you were saying about you know this is the Brando show and you had to kind of get over that. Um, definitely in terms of the pop culture myopia of what little I knew about this. I definitely did walk in thinking like, oh yeah, this like it's got a male lead, the Marlon Brando character. Um, but because I did walk in blind, the fact that the film started, you know, with with Blanche and moved on, you know, with her for a while, and then we got introduced to Stanley, I kind of got the impression that like, oh okay, so he's not quite the main main character. Um, so I I you know kind of in a way settled in on that pretty well. Um, in terms of his Polish representation, he literally has a line where he talks about how he's a proud American and, and, you know, he's, that's, it's the greatest country on earth. So I, I think perhaps maybe Poland would be a bit more fond of Poland. Did he look like a Polish person to you? Um... Not hairy enough. I was I was going to make a joke about uh, skin pigmentation, but then I remembered it's a black and white movie, so I can't really do that. He's not hairy enough. I was noting that down. I'm like, Bartek would be very disappointed that's, with the lack of hairiness. That's a good point. Yeah, I I say this as I'm literally stroking my uh, soul patch and looking at my hairy arms. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> Imagine have that image in your head, rent free people. Um, I you know. Brando is great in this. I mean, it is an iconic performance, and he does stand out from the other two main players because he is delivering that style of acting, which we are now very familiar with in film, that method acting, the iconic method acting, and that naturalistic, almost mumbling some of his lines, but also knowing exactly when to say them with precision. The other two have much more of a stagey kind of acting. And I think that also was a little alienating because I am familiar with older movies. But, you know, Blanche is really playing up the stagey actingness because that's her character. And Stella is just kind of following suit uh, with her character at the very beginning. But then you see she acts differently when she's with Stanley and when she's with uh, Mitch and all the other guys. So no, if you know, she did a good job as well. But yeah, Brando, he's he's coming in with this with this energy and aura of acting that is completely different to every other cast member in the movie, and it is captivating. And we look at it now, and we go, there are many actors now who have obviously do this in movies all the time, but there was just something about seeing him completely embody this this paranoid, disgusting, um, rage-filled guy who can be charming at times, but I appreciate that, uh, unlike my recollection, it's been over a decade since I've seen the Alec Baldwin one, my recollection of the Alec Baldwin performance was I agreed with him far more than I did with uh, Marlon Brando's performance. Like, like his version of Stanley, I nodded a lot more at and was like, yeah, yeah, I kind of get where he's coming from here. Blanche is a little bit weirdo. But in this version, 
Stanley was just too, like, uh, too fucking gross for me to ever truly be on his side about Blanche. And again, I think that works in favor of this adaptation because this is a story about Blanche. This is a story about her her spiraling mental uh, state and her feeling of uh, depression and isolation and victimization. And to have someone who's actively being antagonistic towards her and nobody's stopping it because everyone's afraid of him. I think it helps sell what this movie's about more so than um, my recollection of Alec Baldwin's one, which I felt to be a little bit more kind. I feel like Marlon Brando got the energy level right of making this guy a scumbag, but one that you can believe that people would spend time with. I, um... I'm not sure I fully agree. Um... Uh, I'll mention this. The the audio commentary that I listened to wasn't very good, but they mentioned you know, here and there, uh, basically, most of it they were talking about the history of the play and how it was made, and there were only very occasional moments where they actually talked about what was going on in the movie. Um, and one of the times where they did talk about what was going on in the movie, they talked about how um, the structure of of the story is such that um, they didn't quite want to have a central protagonist and a central antagonist. They kind of wanted uh, every character to have elements of both. And I feel like that mm, did... Yeah. yeah, I feel like that did uh, come through for me. So, that, like, obviously we start with Blanche and she feels like the main character um, because, you know, we're getting her side of the story, her things, but on also she's a bit antagonistic towards her sister when she mentions, like, oh, I know how you're going to react. And definitely when we first meet Marlon Brando... Um, you know, he's not really having much of her shit, but then, like you said, he does make good points at times. Um, he does take a lot of things. When we first meet him, he's getting into a fist fight at the bowling alley. Oh, that's true. Yeah. I was, I was thinking about when- Tells you everything you need to know. I, I was thinking about when we, like, first truly have him, you know, mm-hmm. speak and stuff, like, in the house. Um, and like you said, he is a character who you can see why some people would spend time with him. And he does have scenes where, like, he's always, you know, focused on something, like he, the whole thing of how he wants to investigate what's going on with this thing because, you know, it's it's also related to his wife, you know, the, the missing house, things like that. Um, so, yeah, throughout the film, I did have moments where I, I was firmly on his side, um, but then also because we do follow Blanche so strongly, you know, there are moments where I'm also on her side, but then also, also, also... Um, I can see moments where I'm against them. So I think yeah. in that sense, you know, the film was very effective. Yeah, and I'm also coming... We're this from different perspectives too. You're seeing this with fresh new eyes. You don't know the final outcome of the story. I'm re-watching this, so I know the final outcome. I know what Stanley does, and I'm looking at him from that viewpoint of he's a monster. Now I'm watching it from the beginning and seeing all these monstrous traits that eventually boil up to the surface into a supreme act of violence and assault. And I didn't like. I found him charming. I found him convincing at points, but I always found him coming from an antagonistic viewpoint and one motivated by self-interest which is ironic because that's what he is against about Blanche. He doesn't like that Blanche is this 
um, vanity-filled person. Yet at the same time, he's also a self-interested person. He's also motivated by his own wants, needs, and desires. Screw what his uh, wife wants. Screw what Blanche wants. Screw what his best friend at work wants. It's all about him, him, him. And that's the thing. All of them uh, are, are shitty people, but they also have their moments. But in this version, in my watching of it, I, I I appreciated that, to me, Marlon Brando knew the right moments to play him for the pig he is, whilst playing it in a way where uh, the character doesn't think that of themselves, if you if you catch my drift there. It's doesn't, it doesn't feel like Marlon Brando is um, putting the energies in the wrong places. It feels like it's all in the right places to make it feel complicated, to make it feel unsettling. I was watching this with my wife last night, too, and I think also a major thing to factor in is we're two guys, and we're relating to this guy character. I watched this with my wife last night, and she uh, was conflicted, majorly, one, because Marlon Brando's really fucking hot in this movie, but two, he was really scary the whole entire time because he's this big, imposing male figure who snaps at an instance, and that is very terrifying especially to 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 a woman and this mo- and this story is about is a, is about a woman is about women in a lot of ways and their um reactions or non-reactions to uh to men in a lot of ways i mean blanche's whole entire fucking mental state she hinges on on the uh the the kind you know uh the kindness of strangers most of them being men of course i mean a lot of her mental deterioration factors back to her husband killing himself and then her just relying on all these men, 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 men. And then <laughs> she comes to her sister and then oh, there's a man there. And then there's another man with Mitch as well. And um, it's a very tricky thing. So I was curious too, have you read or seen or familiar with any other Tennessee Williams works? Um, like I say a lot, that's, it's a name I know, but I don't quite know what he's done, so I'm not sure. I think the other big one of note is Cat and Hot Tin Roof is a very interesting one. I haven't watched that one all the way through. I've seen scenes of it. There's a great speech about fat, rich men with no necks, and they call, and it's about like the speech called like these no neck monsters. I like that. I like that conversation, that speech a lot. But I was just curious because... If this is your first Tennessee Williams thing, and you know he's a big name, that's a big name in the writing sphere, what was your overall, what did you, what was the sense, before you get into the commentary and forming your own things, what was your overall sense of what Tennessee Williams was trying to put down and say when you walked away from this movie? Um, I guess the major theme would be like the classism kind of thing where um, Blanche, you know, she has just come from a a rather wealthy context and is now coming to a poorer context and she's having a big, you know, culture shock of, um, you know, how things work in New Orleans and, uh, you know, her sister's living in a, in a poorer setting with a, with an ape Polak of a husband. Um, and yet somehow she's happy. So, um, I guess for a little while, cause again, I didn't quite know where it was going to. Um, I did get the impression that the, the, the film was trying to s- talk about 
you know, how people try to find a sort of, uh, happiness or, or comfort in, you know, unlikely places. So, uh, I guess in that kind of poetic, uh, train of thought. I had a far more depressing view, uh, especially last night. Like I said, it's it's tough times here in Australia, and uh, watching tough media makes you look at things with the glass half empty approach. At least for me, you you have a much more optimistic view of things than I do. Oh well, look when when the film ended, and mm-hmm. you know he our our male lead raped someone. I definitely felt like, oh damn, I was off. <laughs> I looked at it in a way where it's just, like, fucking miserable. Like, people get trapped in these horrible cycles, and really there's no way out of them. It's also coloured differently, too, to me. I keep saying it's coloured differently, because in the ending of the play, Stella doesn't reject him and run away. She stays, and things just continue on. Like, it's this never-ending fucking cycle, and it's just going to continue on and on and on and on. And everyone just accepts that it happened, but they won't speak about it. In this version, at the end, to jump to the end, Stella does seemingly reject him, but I reject that that's what that is. I think it is the cycle continuing again, because she's done that throughout the movie, and he wins her back anyway. And I don't think that this movie is that optimistic that she wouldn't accept him back again even after the horrid events that have taken place because the viewpoint that the movie puts down a lot of times is um good gets poisoned by the harshness of the people like stanley and uh and just the terribleness of the world. And so I walked away with this with a very depressive, pessimistic view of things. Our, our lead character with Blanche is is mentally broken in half and basically uh, completely snapped from reality at this point. She was hanging by a thread throughout the whole movie and now she's completely gone. And off she drives and we don't see her again. And... They all go back to their card game, and, uh, well, they're all ready to go back, but, you know, they're still in shock, and then, up, oh, Stanley's yelling again, and it's just like, up, oh, nothing changes except for the worst, and that's kind of the attitude I got, and having partaken in some other Tennessee Williams works, he does have that as a, as a kind of overwhelming feeling, but there's also like a beauty in his in in his work, including in this movie and in, in in this uh, in this story. There's there's lots of beautiful, sweet, tender moments in between all of the gruesome, depressing stuff. Uh, were there any particular moments of tenderness, of sweetness, or light moments that stood out to you? Yes, um, despite the fact that the the modern time that we live in would you know, probably there'll be people that would demonize a lot of the things in this film. Um, I felt like there was a real sweetness to how the film handled, like, the post-domestic abuse making up. Yeah. Like, when the character's like, oh, I didn't mean it, honey, you know, let's let's go up and, you know, cuddle or whatever. Um, there, there w- I felt like there was a little bit of a sweetness there, and, like, the characters, like, normally when that happens, you know, the women are, like... You know, they're so abused that they'll go along with it, but we know they're unhappy. I felt like in this film, Stella and her neighbor Eunice, they, they 
seem to have some deeper level of, deeper level, level of familiarity with the whole situation. Um, and it, it feels like they can really handle it, especially Stella. Like after the yelling Stella scene, she comes down the stairs and she, she's like in control at that point. Ah, oh, dude, dude, I just, uh, you and I are on opposite ends. That uh, fucking depressed me more than anything. Like, because <laughs> all it says to me is that these women have accepted their their fate or they've deluded themselves. Hence, at the end, when everyone knows that he raped her, they're still playing into their roles. That they've been doing the whole movie, like... The upstairs neighbor is still playing that role of the wife who's trying to help. But there's this, but the but the dynamics are now completely fucked because we know how fucking terrible it truly is. Like before, it was quick moments of violence and quick moments of anger, and because of how quick it was and how less severe it was, us the audience were somewhat willing to forgive it. And also, the only character to object to it all was Blanche. A character who we're still getting used to, who is the outsider, who does get framed as the, well, she's snooty and she's always looking down at us. But this is one of the times where, one of the many times, where she's right. You shouldn't be getting fucking abused by your husband and accepting it. But there are those moments where it makes it complicated, as you say, where Stella admits that it kind of thrills her and kind of turns her on and it's exciting in a lot of ways but that's a very naive viewpoint to have as well as we see as the movie unfolds as the story unfolds so to me (laughs) that was like a damning statement about like the cyclical nature of it all of just uh, well the men will explode and be violent they'll give an apology and the women will accept it and it will just keep going again and again and again like that even if the violence eventually is rape it will just keep going on again and again and again like that yeah again i i was talking from you know film before the rape happens at the mm-hmm. end it all gets flipped on its head yeah i i really want to walk away from this episode not looking like a bad guy <laughs> you don't want to be stanley no, I do want to be Stanley. I just don't want to be a bad guy. <laughs> so he does want to be the rapist, okay. So <laughs> I think the tender moments were the the romance scenes with Mitch, which of course get poisoned by the end because of Stanley. Um, and because of Blanche. She, she has to have some accountability for herself, of course. I don't want it to be like, oh, hashtag team Blanche Dubois. Blanche is a, a very bad person, too. But... Stanley weaponized her past against her, and for what? Because she uses the bath too much? <laughs> but I liked those scenes. I really like the character of Mitch. I've liked him in all adaptations because he seems like, like she says, the sweetest, nicest person in the whole entire fucking story. But, you know... Then, then you see, no, he isn't. He's just as bad. That's the thing. Everyone's as bad as each other, and everyone can be as good as one another too. It's a, it's a tug of war. There are obviously different levels at different points, but uh, Mitch seems like the nicest one out, and he also feels like a victim of circumstance. His mother's dying. 
his best friend has poisoned his potential wife against him, like his future wife, as uh, Tommy Wiseau would say. And uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. Oh, I was curious, too. We're big fans of the disaster artist, both the book and the film. Did it color your like? Did 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 that? Did you have, did you think about that at any point? Because I think we joked about it at the end of the podcast or afterwards that uh, Tommy Wiseau is a big fan of this and that this is a major inspiration point for the room. Did you think about that at all? Yeah, of course. One of the big parts in the book was just Greg Sestero talking about how bizarre it was just to see this one, you know, strange person that he's doing an acting class with just yelling the word Stella, Stella, Stella over and over again. That's always like an image I have in my head that I really find funny. But now that you've seen this story, how does it make you feel about The Room? Because The Room itself is, it's like somebody watched this and misinterpreted who was the person to be caring of? Because it feels like he watched this and related to Stanley. He's like, all oh, these women, they betray me. Nobody cares for me. I'm going to make a story about it. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's... <laughs> Even though, yeah, we were talking about the disaster, I didn't quite connect it to the room. But yeah, I'm, I am seeing parallels now. <laughs> It's crazy, right? Like, how do you walk away from this story and be like, yeah, you know, that poor guy Stanley. I wish I was him. <laughs> yeah, like, let's make Stanley the tragic hero. Uh, he, he nailed damaging his house, I guess. Yeah, he's like, mix Citizen Kane and uh, mix Streetcar Named Desire and a few other things. You know, no Mickey Mouse stuff. Yeah, and you got Rebel without a cause. I think was another one. Yeah, and you got oh, and let's not forget Spartacus, and then um, <laughs> because Greg's beard looks like Spartacus, who famously <laughs> did not have a beard in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's all coming back to me now. So we're coming back to you now, but yeah, I like I love the stuff with with Mitch. I love that actor too. He's in a few things that I've seen of recent watches, he was in the other Marlon Brando film uh, on the waterfront. He plays a priest in that. He was in the film Patton, which I also watched. He played a army general in that. And this actor, whose name I do not have in front of me, this particular actor has always been good in the four or five things I've seen him in. He's really good at playing these down-to-earth guys who feel like they're stuck in this situation in which... You, the audience, wish that they could just break free of it and just be happy. But most often the times aren't allowing that to be the case in this. And in, in, in on the waterfront, he's the priest that's just trying to help out. But everything's like, oh, the world's a mess. In Patton, he's like the other general who's trying to speak rationale and reason to Patton. But it just isn't getting through that helmet of his. And he's he's very good. He was very He's very good at playing those types of characters but in differing ways i really love the scene in which he talked about his heights and his weights and all of that like how proud he was and how he asked her to punch his belly (laughs) (laughs) yeah in in the commentary he made it very clear that he was really in love with this role like he really loves mitch to the point that he was talking about when he'd see other people play mitch there would be one line that he would pay attention to to see how they 
deliver it and he just realized like nope they don't get it like i get it (laughs) (laughs) i i get that as an actor too i've done that too where i've got plays or performances where i've performed the similar things or i've auditioned for the role or whatever and i'm like ah nah, i would have done it different you know i would have done it here 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 i would have emphasized this i would have downplayed that and uh i get that too i get that too any um standout uh moments outside of the final act that we, we we've talked about but any any kind of uh, speeches or interactions or, or, or moments that really stood out to you um i loved it when eunice called uh stanley a stinker yeah yeah that was a really funny line i i like that he's laughing do you hear it people he's laughing right now He's he's having a good old belly laugh. Oh, could we talk? No, I'm I'm in I'm in serious podcast review mode. He's in serious pod review cast mode. Do you want to talk about what we we're talking about? I think a bit off mic about the 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 pole and Pollock aspect of this. Hmm. Sure. Well, do you want to kind of emphasize? We were talking about this a bit <laughs> off mic about how this movie makes a big like a big emphasis on the two phrases and there's a little bit of an interesting irony to it for for you at least yeah so it it seems like um in american culture maybe it's international as well the the term polak is a a slur against polish people um definitely i i see it in in some works i guess um but the irony as someone who speaks Polish and is Polish, is, is that um, the word Polak uh, is the Polish equivalent of the English word Pol when you refer to, like, the denomination of people from Poland. So I always see that term as, like, yeah, it's it's just the term for a Polish male, like, and the female one would be Polka. So, yeah, it was just always really strange to me that that's a slur, and that's kind of what threw me off. So, like, when he had that scene where he's like, I'm not a Polak, I'm a Pole, I'm like, well, yes, in the English language, yes, you're a Pole, but in the Polish language, you're a Polak. And as the Polish one here who does not speak the language and does not have a real connection to the culture as strongly as you, I am familiar with it being used as a derogatory phrase in media and not in my real life. Um, I've never had anyone use that as the insult for me being Polish. I've often just had people make fun of my name as like a weirdo foreign name. But uh, uh, I have seen it used in media and obviously it's, that reflects real life. And it's just interesting to me to hear that now because you have brought this up on the podcast as that's a phrase, but I've just never really thought about it until we watched a piece of media that uses it and like the character that's getting it thrown at them snaps about it and and it's just funny because i was watching it like yeah when she first said it i was like oh my god she can't say that to him and then to hear no that's the correct terminology in polish at least i mean might carry different (laughs) weight over in america but that's the phrase i I mean well the reason why i said like oh maybe in america and you probably heard it whenever i mentioned the term before but like i guess it's the way they say it like the polak rather than Mm -hmm. polak yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, I guess that emphasis do an on the accent for it. <laughs> yeah, but but like the real em- they do the emphasis on like that first syllable, and I guess like there's a sort of like disdainful tone to that. So I, I guess that's just the thing. And having grown up in rural Australia, you know the correct phrase for cultures can still be just be used as a 
slur if you say it with the emphasis like you're saying like there's a certain voice of bigotry and she unwittingly does it throughout the whole movie i guess also the thick southern bell accent um for people like us at least for myself rings of ooh racism because you know the south in america is very racist in 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 culture bestowed upon us i know that our good friends from the contrarians are like texas isn't like that in real life blah 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 but i'm just like yeah 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 sure sure you got your hat on you got your boots (laughs) you know all of that uh (laughs) your revolver your propane and your propane accessories the, the, the snake you just shot yeah the snake you just shot yeah all that kind of stuff um you got your rangers on their horses ready to go um, but yeah, a, a standout moment for me, I would have to say, was I really liked the the film choice of when there were certain triggering moments and events and or when her, Blanche's mental state was spiraling out of control, they would use this reverb and echoing and repetition of other people's dialogue. And especially with Stanley early on, it, it becomes very muffled and we can barely hear it, but she's obviously responding to it. I thought that was very effective film-wise to give us an understanding of her mental space. Because again, this does feel very stagey. Like, you know, no no disservice to the direction, but this does feel like a stage show. But those, oh, yeah. those little touches like that gave it that extra life to warrant it being a film. And I really appreciated those, and those stuck out to me. And that's saying, and that says something about adaptations, is... The things that stuck out to me the most were the embellishments of stuff that can only be really properly communicated in the given medium we're watching it in. And so the filmy moments like the use of audio there or the intricate camera moves and the shrinking of the set as it goes along stood out to me. and Marlon Brando's acting too, stood out to me because it was utilizing the medium that this was adapting, being used to adapt. And the rest of it, although very good, it did feel like this is clearly a stage show. Um, How do you feel about that? And did that affect you positively or negatively, the stage showiness versus the filminess of this? Yeah, I think that might be something that, like, you know, I may not have noticed it, but my brain did, that kind of thing. Yes, Um, Mr. Plinkett has just come into the review now. You you didn't notice it, (laughs) but your brain sure did. It's one of my favourite lines from anything ever, you know. Um, But, yeah, I I guess that is a good point. Again, someone who's not familiar with this, this work hasn't seen the play, I can definitely see, you know, that being a thing that stands out more. Um, Yeah, one moment that I do remember standing out, and I guess this is a bit more testament to the acting, but I'm sure possibly the reverb stuff or something happened there that I just didn't notice. Um, it was, well, first of all, uh, our character Blanche here, she uh, has a very showy nature, which you've already mentioned. She she very much is good at the fast talking kind of thing where in a, in a single snap of a finger, she will be in a mode where she can just keep talking and, you know, kind of hide her insecurities, basically put on the character that hides her loneliness. 
And, you know, there are moments where it breaks throughout the film where, like, someone confronts her. She might get quiet before either continuing or just remaining quiet. But one of the very first times that it breaks, um, there is a sense that, like, there is a, a still performative reaction to it. Um, but the way that she was acting in this moment, I'm about to say, um, there was something different to it that really, you know, the acting just gave you this sense that, like, oh, no, this isn't an act anymore. And it was in the very first scene where she's talking to Marlon Brando, you know, in the house. Um, or maybe it was the second. It was the one where there were, she was going to give him all the papers about like what was happening. Um, and you know, she's, she's in the performance mode. Like you can look through this. Yep. Here are the papers. You can have a look. And then he notices like the letters that are underneath mm-hmm. and her strong reaction to that is just like, oh, she's she's broken the performance. She's actually seriously, like, you know, unhinged, freaking out. Um, and, th- and that showed a real duality to, to you know, this character. It, it started to... It was one of the very first hints that, like, you know, there there's a mental issue at stake at, in at present. Yeah, I agree. It's very subtle stuff that is spread throughout there, even though there's lots of overt, loud, theatrical type of things. It's those little moments like that that you're pointing to that do linger with you. And again, this isn't to fault the play. I think this is a really well-written story. This film is very well done, but it does still suffer in minor parts of being a film that is adapting a stage show and not moving enough. But at the same time, I do appreciate having seen the Alec Baldwin adaptation. Something that I didn't think about was I really did appreciate that this was in black and white. I was looking at this movie being like, what would this be like in color? Because, but then I've went, I've seen one in color and I'm actually liking the stuff that the black and white's bringing. There's like, the black and white is subtracting things from us, and that is, in a way, enriching things. Like, there's that whole scene in which she's going through her her wardrobe in her in her suit, in her trunk, and we can't really tell what these outfits are like because it's in black and white. Like, here's a gold mm-hmm. dress. It looks lovely. You can tell that the outfit looks nice, but the removal of seeing what the color of it is kind of um, added to this overwhelming sense of, like, um, I don't know what the sense is. It just added to this unnerving feeling that obviously is paired up with the dramatic lighting that the movie is putting on. The fact that everyone's sweating is also emphasized in black and white rather than in color because everyone's in their grays and whites, and so the sweat stains stand out all the more than in color sometimes. Sometimes in color that can kind of just get drowned out a little bit more. And go on. Um, there was a point in the commentary where they acknowledged that films had already been made in color. Um, they didn't give an explanation for like why this film was in black and white, but I suppose you know that acknowledgement, the fact that color film was possible at this point, does lend itself to the idea that uh, yeah, there was a purpose behind the black and white, and I guess uh, you're you're kind of you know, trying to grasp onto that. So, yeah, it it definitely feels like an intentional choice. Mm. Um, So I guess with that notion that, you know, colour film was already possible, um, we would look at, like, oh, well, what sort of feelings do we get from colour? Like, you know, we associate colour to, you know, life or emotions and stuff and, you know, deliberately make... Yeah, 
deliberately making something black and white, you know, it, it gives it a different tone. I'm I'm sure we had a conversation like this in a Raging Bull. I can't remember exactly. Oh but yeah, it feels many like, yeah. many other times we've had this conversation. I mean, we did the um, a little while back. We did uh, a couple of years back. Now we were on the Contrarians podcast, where I briefly mentioned earlier, and we did the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, which came out like six years earlier than this. And that movie's bright and colorful and exuberant, and it matches that movie. Here, it being black and white just adds to the overwhelming sense of dread and ambiguity as well. Like, you're being told this is beautiful, but because the color has been removed, it's actually kind of hard to tell how beautiful things are. And that also ties in so well into the black and white of uh, Blanche hiding her age with the lighting. I appreciate Mm. that the black and white on top of the moody lighting that they give is another thing that obscures us from being able to really tell how old this woman looks. Yeah, yeah when um yeah, when Mitch was, you know, getting a good look at her, as he said, like that notion that he never got a good look at her kind of put it in my head, like, oh, maybe I should, you know, get a better look at her. Because, like, yeah. we've seen her throughout the film, but I haven't really paid that close attention. Yeah, and throughout all most of her scenes, she's making sure to be in shadowy things and move lights where she can and put the things on. Like, when I saw this on stage, and when I saw the Alec Baldwin version, that moment where he's shining the light on her face, a part of the translation is lost. In the stage version, it's lost because she's clearly, like, whoever they have is an older woman, and or when I saw it, a, a younger woman with older makeup on, and, uh, you know, and that kind of removes it. And in the uh, Alec Baldwin one, it's in colour, and although they're doing stuff with lighting... I could always tell how old Jessica Lang looked throughout that movie, uh, that adaptation. So when John Goodman's like shining a torch in her face and be like, you look older than I thought. I'm like, no, she looks the same as I thought she did the whole time. But also in this movie, we got to remember in, in a lot of these older movies and TV shows, they would rub a little bit of Vaseline on the screen, on the lens for when women were on to give that, you know, that softer look. They would do a lot of film tricks, light tricks to accentuate the um, innocence and sensuality of women. And so in a way, if they're doing that here, I don't know if they are, but the use of black and white and the lighting within the, like, the lighting within the narrative and the black and white being chosen if they are also implementing those old-school, well-done tricks of softening the image of the female characters, that again ties into like the cleverness of filmmaking and the choices being made that actually benefit the movie. Because when they did shine the light on her face, I did notice oh, she does look a little bit older than, than I've been giving her credit for. And I knew that big moment was coming along, but I had kind of forgotten about it until it came along. And then I was like really appreciative of all of these choices that were made or may have been made to make that moment really hit you really hard. Yeah, it was It was a good moment. I guess in a sort of cynical way, I was thinking like, oh, this is, you know, a 50s film, so this it's the decade, I guess it's still coming up at, this, at that point, you know, it's the beginning of the 50s, but it's the decade where you have like, you know, B-movies where you would have adults playing teenagers, things like that. So I, I was giving the film kind of, you know, a slack of like, oh, okay, maybe the actors aren't playing exactly their age. So mm. yeah, but it was, it was good that the film, you know, had that moment to acknowledge like, oh, no, 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 there is, there is some sort of trickery at play. Yeah. And I, it's good when they acknowledge it. 
We've got to. Do, I mean, there's so many things, but we got to talk about the the turn that the movie takes and the downfall of Blanche Dubois. This is your first time uh, seeing it. Walk us through what it was like to actually see that unfold, and to also put into context that this is a movie we just said from 1951. I imagine you weren't expecting this to be something that was put on the table from a film from this era. Yeah, I wasn't. Um, and and to an extent, because I was, um, I was seeing the dualities of these two major characters. You know, like we like Blanche, but we also kind of don't like her at times. We like Stanley at times, but we also realize, you know, he is a he is an ape Polak. Um, I was I was thinking like, okay, well, the film's gonna end with this kind of notion still at play, so. I'm sure, you know, people that are familiar with this know that the rape's coming, and I'm sure other people w- would, like, tell where the scene's going. Um, surprisingly enough, it actually threw me off. I, I wasn't, I wasn't seeing it coming. I really thought that there was going to be some sort of, you know, consensus, because it seemed to me like Stanley was, you know, he was, you know, he was performing in that scene. Like, you know, he was being friendly at first, but he knew that, like, you know, she was bullshitting and he was just trying to catch her out on it. Um, I, yeah, I, I just thought like he was, you know, trying to freak her out so that when he did what he did, it, it really kind of turned. It was the big turn for me. Did you buy it? I, I think I'm still trying to think about it. I think maybe at the moment I didn't because I thought that, you know, he, he began the scene so happy and I thought like, oh, well, even though he is doing a performance, there is a sort of, you know, genuineness to him at times. You know, he talked about like, you know, we were happy before. Um, you know, I'm gonna be a father, things like that. And I thought, like, you know, he's in a he's in an upbeat place, so maybe he'll be fine for this scene, but yeah, when I I can't believe he smashed the mirror. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a rough scene. I rejected it the first time too when I saw the Alec Baldwin version. And again, Maybe one day I'll revisit it and I'll see what that film was putting down and it was a lot harsher than I remember. But I remember rejecting it and being like, oh, I didn't think that was his MO. I thought he was like genuinely concerned about being swindled and he didn't like her snooty, obvious lying and all of that. However, yeah. in this adaptation and the one I saw on stage, I felt the... um. The, 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 the sinisterness of his character and the overwhelming sense of tension. Tension of not just uh, who's going to snap, but I felt a sexual tension uh, in the characters. Not specifically Blanche, oddly enough, the character who is deemed to be the most sexual by the end of the movie, but I felt an overwhelming sexual tension from Stanley um, when it came to uh, you know Stella and to Blanche. So... When it did happen in this movie, I completely bought it. And also little moments, too, of him taking relish and glee in instilling fear upon the women also made me buy that this is something he would do. Because, again, it's not even the fact that he's sexually attracted to her. To me, it's about putting her in her place like he does with the smack of the fist or the smashing of a plate or the yelling. It's about being the king of the house. 
You have it's- pissed me off because this was supposed to be my evening in which I'm going to wear these fancy pajamas and smoke a cigar. But here you are putting on this massive show about these fake stories that didn't happen. I've had a fucking enough of you. Yeah, it's, it's like that, that saying about rape goes, it's not about sex, it's about power. Yes, exactly. And I bought it very strongly in this. Like I said, I I was never really on Marlon Brando's side. As charismatic as he is and as 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 fit as he was, like he was eye candy, like you said, he uh, he made me nervous throughout the movie. Like very nervous. And I think maybe, who knows, if these one of these um moments in a story in which the audience initially rejects it, a portion of the audience initially rejects it, and then when you reflect back upon it and revisit it, you accept it. Because that's where I'm at. I accept that this is what Stanley is and always was. And it's it's just... Oh. Alec Baldwin set you up for it. Yeah, Alec Baldwin set me up for it. Uh, everyone's favorite member of the Film Actors Guild. Um... A funny thing to note down was the bottle scene, right? The scene where he's about to rape her. That's the scene that Marge and Ned are rehearsing in The Simpsons. Think about that for a second, that in The (laughs) Simpsons, they got Ned Flanders to play this role. Yeah, maybe... maybe, (laughs) That's an extra joke on top of it that we didn't get as kids, huh? Yeah, maybe, you know, you just, I just said the thing about Alec Baldwin set you up. Maybe on a subconscious level, Ned Flanders uh, falsely set me up. Yeah, and in that version, she does glass him, remember? She does get him with the bottle. Well, like I said earlier, I I don't remember much about that. So the fact that that was the scene that they were doing is now making me laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is the scene because it was that episode's a great episode. You need to rewatch it, but that's the scene. And that's where you referenced last week. That was the first real instance where we saw how buff Ned Flanders is. Mm. With his shirt off and all of that and he's in the singlet and whatever. But yeah, I I that final act of the show of the of the movie of the story it's a fucking devastating gut punch. And I think there was a, not to give too much away, but there was a definite trend in these movies, at least of the 50s, to have these women mentally snap at the end in such a way and then be escorted away. And they're still like, ment- like, like they're in this delusion. I don't want to give any movies away for you just in case we do want to watch them on the show. But there are mm. ones of note that I can think of. And it, I don't know if it was just a, a recurring pattern at the time. I don't know what that says about these male writers writing for these female characters. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff people could dissect there. I'm not going to bother. But I was devastated by the end of it when she starts to realize that these strangers are there to take her away and she like runs around the place trying to escape through the curtains and she's like writhing on the floor it was it was it was so real to me i forgot i was kind of watching a movie for a second like i said in an episode recently like uh, with a uh, with tyrannosaur with olivia coleman's performance I forgot that I was watching a movie. I forgot it was in black and white. I felt like I was in the room with this person having a mental breakdown. Uh, 
So I, I had a, another thing. It was only after the film finished and I was looking stuff about it that I remembered like, oh yeah, back then, mental institution equaled lobotomy. Mm-hmm. When, when I was watching the film, you know, before it ended, I was just thinking like, oh yeah, she'll get help. So mm-hmm. I wasn't in the proper, uh, period context for that scene. Um, de- definitely if I was remembered the lobotomy thing, then I would have, yeah, been a lot more horrified. Lobotomy or shock treatments, all these, uh, you know, archaic by today's standards of dealing with mental health. I mean, I guess we have to do one flew of the cuckoo's nest for the podcast again. Um, <laughs> yeah, again, joke. that's right. Um, yeah, I found it devastating. The silence of it all as well. Like, everyone's pretty silent. It's just her screaming and thrashing around. Everyone's just kind of watching on because they all know. They they all don't know what to do, but they all know that this is the only option left because, uh, I mean, where else, like, what else do you do with Blanche at this point? You know, she's a completely broken person. Completely broken. Yeah. Yeah, they mentioned in the commentary that, like, her her main goal, you know, her central goal is just to find a place where she can live, you know, and the, the streetcar named Desire took her to this home that she started to, you know, get, well, I say get comfortable in, there were a lot of things in the way, but, you know, she was trying to get comfortable there, um, and, you know, with her mental issue... It seems to be that she's trying to find a partner to settle down with, you know, chasing Alan, her husband from the past, or boyfriend, I can't remember if they were married or not. Um, and then, you know, her mental state at this point, you know, post-rape, is that the the lie she was telling in the penultimate scene was that, like, she's going to go with a rich man on his yacht on a date. And this is the state that she's stuck in now. And at the very end, when that orderly or whoever that was is playing into Mm. you know that scenario yeah she is finding comfort in that because she thinks she's achieving that goal and you know character's not going to suddenly back out of achieving their central goal so it is a sort of you know weird tragedy there and even like when she's walking with him out of the house and like she's just looking at him as if this is like the reward of the film this character that we the audience have also grown to love you know, she's looking in the direct opposite direction of Mitch, who's, you know, sat on the table. It, it really was just this really tragic scene. Yeah, and doesn't even acknowledge Stella's calls out for it either. Mm. It, but then, see, this is the great stuff about it, is she she has so many beautiful statements, but, like, at this point, there's so many different ways or different ways to play it or read it or whatever, because her character's such a performer. In a way... There's that thing of she knows what's going on, kinda, and she's accepting it and playing into it, but also she's at that stage where she's so mentally broken that her lies are real now to her, which is something that she stated along the way, which is like, I don't hurt people with my lies and deceptions. I'm trying to comfort people. I'm trying to give them a better reality than what is actually real. And that is what she's giving herself at the end in a lot of ways too. But again, it ties into such a performative aspect of seeing the world that that's where her mental state is at, is this this performative aspect of her life is now solidifying as a reality to her. And it's just so fucked up. And that final line she has, I, I don't know if it is for you, but 
that is one of the most iconic lines from this from this movie and stage show is you know the company of strangers uh that is one of those lines that has transcended i don't know if it's one that you were familiar with i don't know if it was one of those ones where when she said it you're like oh that's where this is from yeah it was very much a oh that's from this Mm -hmm. oh okay Yeah. yeah and it's weird how pop culture has used that line's context and completely removed it like when you hear that line that's not this. What actually is the context of what she's saying it is in is not what it evokes pop culture wise. It's been yeah. It, there's no the, the line as I understood it. You know, through pop culture myopia, was not that it was you know a character not realizing that what they're saying is not true. I, I thought it was like a genuine thing of like, oh yeah. Sometimes you really need to you know consult someone you're not familiar with. There's a there's a comfort mm-hmm. in that. It's removed the tragic irony from it. Why do you think that happens with some things? Like, it's always hard to to understand why the pop culture sphere and the meta sphere and whatever chews these things up and spits them out in completely different ways. Like, I've mentioned it before. Captain Kirk in Star Trek is not the Captain Kirk that you know that that most people figure him to be because of the perpetuating image that pop culture has bestowed that's not actually the same character it's a completely different character why do you think that happens why do you think a line like this has been recontextualized in this manner why um yeah it's a really good question the um i know that there are I can't remember if it was like a Facebook thread or it was like Reddit or it was some sort of screenshot of a thread of people saying things that's like, oh, that's interesting, where it was, you know, common sayings that we all know, but like the mm. actual original versions. Yeah. And like the main one that I always keep in my mind is when people say um, blood is thicker than water, when the actual saying is something along the lines of the the... The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. It's basically saying the exact opposite. The mm-hmm. relationships you form are stronger than the ones that you are forced into by your relation. Yeah. And it just, it, and that one especially seems to be one where it's fitting an agenda. So yeah. perhaps, I, I don't know how that would relate for this one, but perhaps th- there is some sort of agenda being I, I, set. I agree. You that you brought that up. That's great. Like Rachel always brings this one up, which is curiosity killed the cat. Do you know what the oh, ending of that yeah, is? Satisfaction brought it back. Satisfaction brought it back, but that's rarely ever used. It's always curiosity killed the cat. There is this thing of, um, I guess, with those sayings. Those sayings. There's a lot of recontextualization to make them more like. Um, kind of dour and damning in a lot of ways and like you said with an agenda here in this line i think there's that thing of i always remember i won't say their name there's always this person that we we have we've had on the podcast who's like i don't like sad movies i only like watching movies that make me happy i only want to feel happy and i think sometimes people grab these type of lines with with tragic, dramatic ironies, and they're like, ooh, but I like the line, but I don't like that it's sad. I'm going to twist it into, like, this other thing. And I, I don't know if that's the case, but that's what I get the feeling of. I, that's me being optimistic and not just me thinking people are dumb and didn't understand what the line's uh, weight was in the first place and just thought it was neat and just kept using it until it, they, you know, the, the original meaning was kind of 
lost on general masses. Like, but that's my thing on it. Like, I also knew this person who uh, loved this one Ed Sheeran song called Bump, but they ed- they specifically themselves edited out the final line in which, like, the song's like a tragic reveal that the baby didn't make it type song because they liked the version of the song that was the baby made it. I'm like, that's crazy. But, um, and that's per- that person I know is crazy. But, uh, yeah, anything else you want to say about a streetcar named Desire? Um, when we're talking about the ending, the actual very, very ending of it, mm-hmm. uh, Stella's line and the going to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't feel right to me. It's because it's not the version in the play. Yeah, when I when I listened to the, I I <laughs> they mentioned it in the commentary that that's one of the you know producer meddling decisions they had to do. Um, and I didn't need to listen to the commentary to know that that was the case. It, it felt really forced. The way they described it in the commentary was that like. Oh, uh, for this film, we need to have an ending notion of like the, the, there needs to be a set villain and they need to get their comeuppance. And it just seems to be like, oh, suddenly Stanley is calling out for Stella again, even though he's just, he was just in his house, you know, like playing poker or just setting, settling the situation. Now he's suddenly screaming for her again and she has this like really on the nose line about like, I'm never coming back here again, goes up mm-hmm. the stairs and like the, the 50s ending music plays and the end. Yeah, and it's just yeah. like, that's not the film I just watched. Fuck it off. was a betrayal. Yeah, it was a betrayal. But yeah. I also do appreciate there is that kind of feeling of, like I said earlier, of, well, this has happened before. What's like, is it actually going to change anything? But it is different. And even the rape scene is is different. Like, I appreciate that they, they fought very hard to get that in the movie because, you know, obviously they, they, they weren't going to get it in the movie if they didn't fight for it. And I guess it's like, you know what it's like. You and I have worked on creative projects where there's many different hands and many different pies and there's people with different wants, needs, and desires for the project. And you have to, as an artist and as a person who's also in business, have to make concessions. And where do you make the concessions? And I think it's like, in this case, it's like, here's the concessions being made. Remove the rape or have this ending. And I think if that's the way you got to do it, then that's the way it's got to be done. Like, because I think the rape aspect, if it was removed, would be the big betrayal of the of the story. Yeah, and even what we did see, at least it was dramatic, like the, the mm-hmm. mirror getting shattered and then just cutting. That's the end. Yes, exactly. Um, we we got what was happening there. Yep. Because they also mentioned like a bunch of like really random lines just got cut out because like oh that's inappropriate like there, apparently there was a line somewhere where Blanche said like oh I'm gonna I want to kiss you on the mouth and it's like oh on the mouth yeah. that's that's not good yeah and that her husband was actually gay um the one that killed himself that was a line cut that's why he killed him she found them sleeping in bed there was also uh I remember the Alec Baldwin one in the play so this must have been cut. There's a more overt line, which I didn't miss here, in which Stanley's basically like, um, this this date has been set from the beginning. Like, basically a line that's like, this event that we're going to have now, me raping you, was basically written by the time you got here. 
And oh, so, so like he basically knew that he was going to do it at some point. Yeah, yeah, because uh, having seen the play, there is a w- overwhelming sense of sexual tension here. It, it's present, but not as overwhelming um, between them. But uh, I can only speak for the this version of the stage show I saw. Uh, but yeah, I don't miss that line all that much. I get it, but uh, I thought it was done well enough here. Uh, I think that's about it. It's a good movie. Like, it's just good. It's a good story. You know, like, it's one of those ones it was. Where, where it's like, well, how do you fuck this up, you know? Like, it's just such a well-written, well-thought-out thing that you'd really have to go out of your way to fuck it up if you're making it as a play. I mean, making it as a film. And they didn't. They got mm. great actors and a great director. And, you know, it's one of those iconic things. Um, yeah. Wasn't as good as The Room, though. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was no Harvey either, which came out a year earlier, um, mm. which also featured um, mental institutions, which seemed fine in that I movie. Was think- I was thinking that earlier when you said films, you know, ending with women, but then I remembered, oh, that wasn't really an ending. No, 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 no. It ended with him walking off with Harvey. Um, Although, like I mentioned, the lobotomy thing wasn't on my mind, so if I rewatch Harvey, I might have that kind of dread over my head. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, Streetcar Named Desire, great one to revisit. I was happy to revisit an old movie as well, and a classic. Sometimes it feels nice to to strike off a classic film from the list, don't you agree? Yeah. Um, also, I I don't think we said it yet, but um, it was recommended by Dave. Oh, yes, yes. Friend of a friend of ours. So I hope you're happy with our discussion on it. Bartek, I recommend it. You recommend it? I do recommend it. I think it was a good film. There you go. You are now the one with the recommending of a film next for the podcast. Uh, yeah. What are you going to be recommending for all of us? All of us, people. All of us. Each and every one of you is going to sit down and watch the movie Bartek recommends. And I'll know if you didn't watch it. Okay? I'll know Bartek won't. He's too busy laying down in bed. We call him Bed Boy Bartek on the pod now. Not Best Boy. We call him Bed Boy. Um, I used to be good boy. He used to be good boy, Bartek. And now we change it. And I'm soft hey, Ryan. So, because uh, <laughs> I say hey softly. So, Bartek, what are you recommending for us to view? So, this film's uh, a little bit younger than than A Streetcar Named Desire by about ooh, 65 mm-hmm. years, maybe. Did I do my maths correctly? So, we'll, we'll find out. Zero. Well, yeah, yeah, about 64, 65 years. Um, we are in my uh, thing where I'm picking a non-American film, and we are going back to the world of anime, Ryan. Oh, uh, yay. Yum, yum. What are we doing? Yep, and this is a film that you are aware of, but I don't think you've seen yet. It is 2016's A Silent Voice. You're right. I I haven't watched that. It's been on my it's been on my to to watch list, and I was like, I figured out that what year you were gonna say, and I'm like, is he gonna recommend your name? Because I want to rewatch. It's that. the same year, but it's the same yeah. year. Both big ones of that year. I think your name is it. Your name. Your name. Yes, was the bigger one. But yeah, Silent Voice. It was. Yeah, the Silent Voice was the runner up. Runner up. But let's give that one a watch. Obviously, we're going to be watching this subtitled version, people. Uh, 
So make sure to check out that version. I don't know if there's a dubbed version of this. I imagine there would be. It seems like most of them have dubbed version nowadays. But we will be doing the subtitled version because we are we are purists, aren't we, Bartek? Yes, yes. I didn't even have to say we're doing the subtitled version. Ryan already knew. I knew, but some people out there might say, but I want to listen to the version with Jeff Goldblum as the voice. I don't know if he's in it, but I assume he is. <laughs> I've... Uh... I've said it before on the podcast, but the opening song of the film is an English language song, so you can enjoy that. Aren't a good like? We will talk about this next week, I guess. But what is with Japanese animation, TV show, and movie wise having lots of their theme songs or pivotal songs be sung in English? Because I've been watching a bunch of Ghibli's things, I've watched some anime shows of myself, and they tend—they're not all the time, but there is a, there is an overwhelming presence of that happening. Why? Why is that? Do you know? Are you talking about like gratuitous English kind of thing? Like the songs are in English. Like there are some of these movies and shows in which they just have a song that's made for the movie. They made it for the movie, but it's sung in English. Why do you think that? Why? Why is that? Um. There's a lot of cultural things that I can bring up, and I'm not sure which one be relevant here. Um, I guess some of the ones that I'll bring up are, you know, one, certain languages have... No, loan words wouldn't really apply if we're talking about all English. Um, I know that in Japanese culture, using English uh, is seen as a sort of, like, trendy thing. I was going to say, is it it something where they're like, it's in English, so it sounds... Foreign and cool. Yes, it's it, it's kind of it's kind of like what we have with French. Like, ooh, he said a French thing. That's fancy. Like, it, mm. they have they kind of have that with English as well. Um, there's also yeah, like gratuitous kind of appeal kind of thing. Um, I, I will say though that this isn't a song that was made for the film. It's it's a known song from I think like the sixties. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. All right, your name? No. Silent Voice. No, the other one. Silent Voice next time on the pod. Until then, you can find us on those social medias of Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polish Presents, in which we're posting things on there, having discussions. Let us know what you think about uh, what we've discussed. You can email us as well at spitandpolished at gmail.com. You can let us know what you think, recommend us movies. You can help us add more to the list. Whatever you do. You can do it on all those, which is in the description of the episode. Rate and review us on whatever podcatcher allows you to do so. It would be greatly appreciated. And uh, that's that's it, Bartek. Uh, I think, you know, how do you end such a heavy episode? We got heavy, man. We got heavy, like Marlon Brando later in life. We got heavy... I had to make it. I'm sorry. I had to make the Marlon Brando got fat and bold joke. I'm sorry, yeah. Marlon Brando. Well, look, you have to leave this ending to me because there was a point in this episode where, well, a point, the multiple points where it seemed like I was, you know, advocating for, you know, domestic abuse, things like that, saying like, oh, it's so cute that they're getting back together, things like that. I want to just make it clear to everyone that I do not support domestic abuse, things like that. And to prove that, I'm going to make a power play by throwing things at my wall. 